Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Better Call Saul has adjourned the Breaking Bad universe, and I've got my thoughts on the entire series right now. Hello, everybody. I'm Dan Merle, and I am here to talk about Better Call Saul, which just wrapped up its run on AMC this previous week. And it's something that people have asked me about a lot, even since I started the channel back in 2020. Why don't you talk about Better Call Saul? And it's a show that I have watched. It was appointment television, and it's a show that I really, really liked. One reason that I didn't do a whole lot about it on the channel even after a season, is that it was such an interesting show in its structure. It wasn't so much about what's going to happen week to week. Oh, this big plot twist. It was a character study. At times, it was a slowly unfolding character study. It would be like pausing a movie for me after 20 minutes to talk about the movie. I just wanted it to play. I just wanted the movie to be over, and then once the movie was over then I would talk about the movie. And so that's kind of where I am with Better Call Saul. So I want to talk about my thoughts, obviously, for the finale and the final season, which just wrapped up, but also really my thoughts on the whole series, things that were highlights for me from specific seasons, characters that I liked, etc. So if you haven't seen Better Call Saul, and if you haven't seen the finale of Better Call Saul, then there are definitely some spoilers ahead. But for those of you that have seen the show and want to hear my thoughts, let's dive in. Wait, Jimmy, Jimmy, what? It's all good, man. One of the rare things about this show is I can actually trace down to the day my first involvement with it, which is back on September 12th, 2013, which is just under nine years ago. That's so hard for me to even kind of wrap my head around. We published a jokey introduction to Better Call Saul when I worked at Screen Junkies. I was an editor there at the time, and the show had been introduced the day before, and we kind of fast-tracked this thing, throwing together different clips and from different seasons of Breaking Bad and introducing gag characters and putting it to kind of a sitcom theme. And it's such an interesting kind of time capsule into how we even thought the show was going to be because it's a comedy. Like, we set it up as like a sitcom thing, and that's what the character was. Saul Goodman, for 80% of Breaking Bad, was a comedic character. And so it seemed kind of reasonable that Better Call Saul, this new spinoff that had been announced, would be about the wacky Saul Goodman and his crazy clients in Albuquerque. It would be set, you know, before Breaking Bad, but shortly before Breaking Bad. And you'd bring in Badger, and you'd bring in all these colorful different characters. And it would be mainly a comedic-based show. And honestly... If you look at just the marathon that was Breaking Bad, you really couldn't blame Vince Gilligan and Peter Gould, the creators of Better Call Saul, if that's the show that they had done. Because it would have been an easier show. It would have been a show probably more in line with what people expected. And that's something that I loved so much about Better Call Saul, is that it was not at all the show that I thought it was going to be, and yet it was better 
than what I had kind of anticipated. So let's go back to that first season, which was back in February of 2015. It's crazy to think about just how long ago that was and where we started off with Better Call Saul. And the first thing that we learned is that his name isn't Saul Goodman. His name is James McGill or Jimmy McGill. And even when we first are meeting him, I kind of thought like, okay, well, yeah, this makes sense because this is the show about how Saul Goodman became Saul Goodman. So the first part of the season is going to be, okay, we meet James McGill. And then by the end of the first season, he'll be like, he'll be Saul Goodman. Does a steaming pile of crap scream payday to you, huh? The only way that entire car is worth 500 bucks is if there's a $300 hooker sitting in it. But what I loved about the show's first season, and it set the tone for the rest of the series, was that it wasn't really about Breaking Bad that much at all. And the first season especially was so deep into this relationship between Jimmy McGill and his brother Chuck. And with Chuck not being in the last few seasons, I feel like some people have forgotten about him. But he was such a great character. And the fact that Michael McKeon didn't win an Emmy, first of all, for his performance is criminal. But then when you go back and look and see that he wasn't even nominated outside of the guest performer category for a cameo in a later season of the show, that is just unforgivable because he was so great in this show. And when you go back, the awards have kind of been slow to pick up on just how good Better Call Saul is, even though it's a spinoff from Breaking Bad, which is like, you know, the Emmyest Emmy show that ever Emmyed. And when you look at that first season, the dynamic between Chuck and Jimmy is such, it just keeps unwinding. And you have that heartbreaking revelation toward the end of the first season that Chuck has been undermining Jimmy this entire time. People don't change. You're slipping Jimmy. And slipping Jimmy I can handle just fine, but slipping Jimmy with a law degree is like a chimp with a machine gun. And it's really there that I started to understand that this show wasn't really about the corruption of Jimmy McGill. It was about the destructive influence of Saul Goodman. Because Saul Goodman or Slippin' Jimmy, this is something that was a part of James McGill from the time the show started. This wasn't another show in the mold of Breaking Bad about, you know, like the downfall of a good man. No, it's so much deeper than that, and there's so much history between these characters. And I guess it really shouldn't be surprising, but it's yet another show like Breaking Bad where you have a protagonist that we have very complicated feelings about, especially because Bob Odenkirk is such a likable actor, and you liked Saul. He was a slime lawyer, but you liked him in Breaking Bad, here you understand that you, you should probably have felt bad for liking him because there's such a deep well of darkness and pain underneath that persona that we already know. I remember you saying something about doing the right thing. I know what stopped me. You know what? It's never stopping me again. Season one was a lot of Chuck and Jimmy. Season two was really the emergence of Kim Wexler, who was played by Ray Seahorn. She was in the first season, but season two is where Ray Seahorn was able to slowly open this character up, and we as an audience began to realize, oh, there's a lot more there than there was last season. And you see that a lot in TV shows. There will be a character who's perhaps a supporting character or a secondary character. And over time, the writers realize they have a great thing, as you do with Ray Seahorn. You have a great actor in this role. And then you give them more to do. And I think that that's great with the show, is to have some flexibility to roll with what's working and the strengths that maybe you didn't see from the very beginning. Who cares what it does to Jimmy, right? As long as Howard Hamlin is okay. Kim, I, I don't think that's fair. Fair? Let's talk about fair. Ray Seahorn is so freaking good 
in this show. And when you look at Kim Wexler, she is as complicated and in some ways even more complicated than Jimmy McGill. And it's not like she's being manipulated. And I think that's another really smart storytelling choice they made in this show. It would have been very easy to have it so that Jimmy is kind of pulling her strings along with everyone else's, but she goes into everything with her eyes wide open. And that makes her character so much more compelling and gives Ray Seahorn so many different other notes to play. We're gonna pull the plug and we are going to live to fight another day. What other day? She didn't really go big in a lot of scenes. I think that's why you didn't see a lot of recognition for her performance in the earlier seasons of the show. But now, I think that she's going to have to be clearing a lot of room off of her shelf because people are finally catching on to just how great she is in this series. But even given these complicated characters, there's a point in season two where Jimmy's trying to get fired and he puts on, for the first time really, the persona that we would see as Saul Goodman. And again in my head, I'm like, okay, this is where the transition begins. And yet once again, the show kind of swerved and had something even better in store. Because the real story of season two was this battle of the wills between Chuck and Jimmy, which comes to a head at the end of the season when Chuck records this incriminating evidence that could get him disbarred and then goes into season three. And season three actually has what I think is my favorite episode of the series. I haven't watched them all more than once, and obviously the last season is still fresh, but there's a season three episode called Chicanery, which basically is a hearing where Chuck is trying to get his brother, Jimmy, James McGill, disbarred for all of these different things. And in order to try to salvage some part of his own reputation and his own career, Jimmy betrays his brother in a, in a particularly cruel, particularly painful way. I submit that Mr. McGill's mental illness is a non-issue. If he were schizophrenic, Schizo it wouldn't take away from the fact that the I defendant- I am not crazy! And like I said, these are complicated characters and Chuck certainly took some very hurtful actions against his brother. But if there was a point in the series, if you're looking at a road that diverges, where James McGill could have not become Saul Goodman, where he could have actually turned his life around, this was the point. Instead, he commits this- really, in many ways, unredeemable act of betraying his brother, humiliating him publicly in order to save himself, and it sets into motion a series of tragic events. And Michael McKeon's performance throughout the whole season, but particularly in that episode, again, criminal that there was no mainstream award recognition, at least not from the Emmys, for his performance in this show. Couldn't keep his hands out of the cash drawer. But not our Jimmy. Couldn't be precious Jimmy. Stealing them blind, and he gets to be a lawyer. And this whole hearing puts Chuck on a path basically to his death. And the death of Chuck for me is really, in many ways, until the very end of the series, the death of James McGill. That's where Saul Goodman really takes over and is in the driver's seat for good. The scene early in season four after Chuck's death, where Howard Hamlin is just so emotional, thinking that he was the reason that Chuck killed himself because he had been let go from the law firm. And Jimmy just lets him think that and basically says, well, yep, you're gonna have to live with that. I think he did what he did because of me. Well, Howard, I guess that's your cross to bear. The coldness of that. I mean, that that's just almost inhuman. Not only did I directly cause these events, I am going to inflict the pain that I have inside of me onto somebody else who I don't like. The cruelty of that, the coldness of that, 
That is the complicated thing. And the reason why Saul Goodman, Jimmy McGill is a very complex protagonist, because how do you come back from that? How do you ask the audience to like this character? And yet he doesn't go so far over to one side that you stop liking him. I don't miss Chuck. Chuck was alive and now he's dead and that's that. Finito. Life goes on, so sue me. Now, the other thing about season three is that it's where a lot of the Breaking Bad stuff really started coming to the forefront. The stuff about the cartels and Gus Fring and Hector Salamanca, you get Mike involved, you start talking about the meth lab. I liked that stuff, but it was never my favorite part of the show. And it's, it was very interesting to me after the first two seasons that it would take such prominence in the seasons that followed uh, because I was by that time so invested in Kim and Jimmy and Chuck and Howard that the fact that this would oftentimes uh, share the spotlight as the main uh, drama of the show it was surprising to me. I was happy, actually, with the structure. We'll talk about the structure of the series in just a second. But I was happy that they wrapped this up before the final few episodes because the focus of the final last episodes of this series needed to be on the characters that were introduced in this series. And I think it was very smart for them to do that. So season four is a lot of Salamanca stuff and cartel stuff. But I think that season four is also where Kim has her chance to escape from the orbit of Saul Goodman. She is doing the Mesa Verde case. She is also doing this pro bono legal work. She's in the aftermath of seeing what happens when she overexerts herself as much as she has been. And yet, Jimmy McGill, Saul Goodman, is just like a black hole. He just sucks in and devours everything that's near him. And so she gets caught back up in this, in this orbit and helps him to pull off another scam. And it reminds her of just how much she kind of, let's be honest, gets off on it. And this really seals her path for the future. I don't buy that Better Call Saul is a, any kind of a tragic story for James McGill. If there is a main tragic story in this series, it's Kim Wexler. She's a talented lawyer. She could have been one of the top lawyers in the country. And yet, because she just couldn't get away from this one guy who was the worst thing in the world for her, in many ways, her life was very unfulfilling. My great hope for her in my sort of dream world as I write the script past the finale of Better Call Saul is that she was able to get back into that pro bono work. We saw her volunteering a little bit at that law office in Florida. I would like to think that she's able to escape the gravity of this imploding star. And in my brain, she was. She was able to find that resolution and move on with her life. Season five is a season that was mostly devoted to escalation. It was all about bringing the stakes up so that by the time we get to this final season, uh, we are in a very dire situation across the board. It also has one of my favorite Kim Wexler episodes, one of my favorite scenes from Ray Seahorn where she and Saul have had this legal showdown and Saul has kind of embarrassed her and pulled this, you know, slipping Jimmy maneuver. We filed an injunction, so you're gonna have to take down all your horsey logos or if you throw a big tarp over them till we can get this thing settled. And they have this confrontation scene where you think that she's finally about to tell him off and she says, maybe we get married. Because then it's privileged, all the conversations between us, and we don't have to worry about doing these surprise things in the courtroom. You can just tell me what you're going to do. I love how this scene is played, and again with Kim, it is her chance to tell this guy off, and instead, she digs herself in deeper because she is just addicted to this guy and addicted to the rush of the con. If I get into trouble, they can't make her testify against me. You getting hits for that? 
Season 5 also has the great episode Bagman, where we have Jimmy facing down gunmen in the desert while transporting all of this bail money. If there is an episode of Better Call Saul that I thought was very reminiscent of Breaking Bad the most, it would be this one. This felt like the kind of situation that Walter White and Jesse Pinkman would have gotten themselves into. And it was a very great, very suspenseful episode. So that leads us to the final season, the one that just wrapped up. It premiered a few months ago. It was split into two different parts. The first half of it, a lot of what we're seeing is this devotion to the destruction of Howard Hamlin. And it's here that I have to give a lot of credit to Patrick Fabian, as the actor who played Howard Hamlin, because this is a character, Howard, who you unapologetically hated for a lot of this series run because he was just arrogant and smug and vindictive and you really didn't like him. And yet the treatment that he was subjected to at the hands of Jimmy and Kim uh, in this final season, you actually start to feel bad for him. And so much of that has to do with Patrick Fabian and his portrayal of this character. You understand some of the humanity behind Howard as the season goes on. You two. You two are soulless. You were born that way. But you, one of the smartest and most promising human beings I've ever known. And this is the life you choose. There are so many great supporting performances. We're, we'll, we're still going to talk about a lot of them. Uh, but there are some that won't be eligible in the next Emmy cycle because of the way that the season splits. And Patrick Fabian is one of them because he doesn't appear in the final batch of episodes. And the fact that he was overlooked uh, by the Emmys this year, I was very sad to see that because it is one of those performances that goes unheralded, but it is so crucial to the show and especially this season. You know your characters are doing something wrong when you start liking the unlikable a-hole. The first half of this last season also gave us one of the best final scenes, I think, for any character in television history, and it's from another outstanding supporting actor in this ensemble, and that's Michael Mando, who plays Nacho, who decides to take his fate into his own hands literally and kill himself rather than allow himself to be murdered by the cartel. He knows that he's going to lose his life, and he just gives one of the best F.U. speeches. So when you are sitting in your shitty nursing home, and you're sucking down on your jello night after night for the rest of your life you think of me i just love the resolution they gave this character because he in many ways was sort of at other people's mercy throughout the series and yet here he's able to go out on his own terms and michael mando is another actor who won't be eligible for this next emmy cycle uh, next year and who was overlooked this year and it's a real shame because nacho was a character who was vital to everything that happened especially in the cartel storyline on this series and he went out uh, so memorably so the end of this first half of season six gave us the tragic end i mean he was already just kind of a pathetic shell of a person uh, but then the tragic end of howard hamlin and i loved how this scene was shot there's something about memory and a weird way that memory works in that you remember odd things about moments of crisis. And I'm sure everybody's had these moments. But I loved how the show kind of recreated that for the viewer because it's such an insignificant detail. When Howard walks in the room, you see that his motion causes this candle on the table to flicker. And he's asking why Jimmy and Kim would do this to him. And then Lalo Salamanca comes into the room and you see that flicker of the motion coming in, which is such a benign thing, and yet it becomes so menacing. And then Howard is killed so suddenly. 
and the reaction is played so well by Bob Odenkirk and Ray Seahorn. And then Tony Dalton is Lalo, who came in for the last couple seasons, really, and was such a memorable, true villain. And I actually am curious to know, like, the viewing experience for people, because I think most people probably are going to watch this maybe for the first time, definitely for the second time, sort of binge it and won't have that break in the middle of the season that people that were watching it in real time had because that was such a a shocking thing. And we just had to sit with it for six weeks and not know exactly what was going to happen. And then when we came back, we had really two episodes of the cartel stuff and then that got wrapped up and then the four episodes that really focused on Saul. But it kind of harkens back to when I watch shows like Lost and you would have to just sit for weeks or months at a time on these big twists and plot points, and yet that's not the viewing experience that most people have because they're watching it on Netflix or they're watching on a DVD, etc. Uh, so it'll be interesting for me when I do revisit Better Call Saul to see how all of this plays without this week's-long break uh, but after this shocking event. Today you're Meryl Streep and Laurence Olivier. No staring into space, nothing out of the ordinary, you cover. Before we move on, I'd like to thank the sponsor for this review, Athletic Greens, the makers of AG1. I've been talking about AG1 on the show for quite some time, and I started taking it because I am, as I've said before, looking to improve my overall health, particularly my gut health, which is increasingly important as you get older. So what is AG1? Well, with one delicious scoop, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. And it's super simple. I can either put a scoop in a cup of water, mix it into a shake with breakfast. Either way, it is a quick and tasty way for me to start the day off right and to make sure that I'm supporting not only my gut health, but my immune system, my recovery and focus, and so much more. If you don't take a multivitamin or have been trying to figure out which one to take, AG1 is also a great choice because it is full of high-quality ingredients that your body will actually absorb. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition and to make it easy. Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com Dan. Again, that's athleticgreens.com Dan, D-A-N, to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. And I'd like to thank Athletic Greens for sponsoring today's show. So I don't really know the general response to the last four episodes, which are mostly in black and white with some flashbacks, etc. We had seen, of course, parts of this throughout every single season. It was actually kind of hard for me to remember because it was usually sort of the prelude to the first episode of each season. And I, I wasn't re-watching the series in between seasons, so I always had to remind myself what had just happened the season before uh, because it had been over a year since I'd seen the last uh, black and white gene scene. Uh, and that was kind of compounded by the fact that you had to bring in uh, Pat Healy, who was a great actor. He was a, a friend of Screen Junkies when I was there to recast a critical role uh, kind of midstream. So that was even more confusing because I'm like, wait a minute, Pat Healy was on this show? I don't remember that. Or is he showing up for the first time? And I had to go back and be like, oh no, it's the guy with the sweater. He was in the last season, but that was like two years ago. So it was interesting to kind of piece that together. But I do think that the main focus being on 
this post-Breaking Bad era was a smart idea. It was a risky idea, the idea that you're going to do the last four episodes almost entirely in black and white, a much slower story. But it's the payoff to the Jimmy slash Saul that we have been developing on this show since Breaking Bad. Do you know how many of the suckers we've ripped off have sob stories? Every single one of them. Saul is not the alter ego. The alter ego is the guy who's not Saul. It's Gene. It's the Cinnabon manager. Inside of Jimmy McGill or Gene, there is Saul Goodman. He's looking for his first opportunity. He's addicted to the con and the grift. He's addicted to the power that he gets and the prestige and the admiration that he gets when he pulls off a con or pulls off a grift. And I wonder how much of it was also this hole inside of him after Kim left, because that's what bonded them together so much, was the fact that they could pull off these cons together. And I wonder if there was a part of his psyche or whatever saying, well, I can't get Kim back by doing these con artist things, but I can at least get this rush back. I can get a little hint of what it was like when I had Kim in my life. It's the ultimate flawed character, but it's flawed from a different way. It's not a good man who falls to the dark side. It's a dark man who's occasionally good. Carol Burnett was such a great presence in these episodes, and these last six, the ones that came out after that mid-season break, they're going to be eligible for the Emmys next year. Better Call Saul has a bunch of nominations that are pending right now for the Emmys. They get one more year of eligibility. Same thing with Stranger Things. So this season is basically going to be split between two Emmy years. I think that Carol Burnett is going to get some Emmy love as a guest actress in a drama series at next year's Emmys. I typed in Con Man in Albuquerque. And up you popped big as day. And these last few episodes also paid off that big fan question of, are we going to see Walter White and Jesse Pinkman in the show? Because we flash back to them a few different times. I do think that the individual flashbacks were the ones that I preferred. I loved the discussion that Kim had with Jesse outside of Saul's office. I thought it was a great way to meld these two universes, and it made sense. This guy, any good? When I knew him, he was. And I liked the flashback that we got between Walter and Saul in the finale, where they're shacked up together as they're about to, you know, have their identities changed. And just Walter White in that judgmental way of his saying, oh, you've always been like this. A slip and fall. Yeah, that's how I put myself through bartending school. Right. Those were the most effective for me on a character level. The first flashback, the RV thing, I feel like that was really there to kind of tie up that loose end. Oh, no, 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 no! No! It wasn't me! It was Ignacio! That first flashback wasn't that effective for me, and I was glad that they kind of put those characters in in a better way later on a couple episodes down the line. I also love in the finale that Jonathan Banks got one last great kind of dry, cynical, smart-ass Mike scene. Would you go to Civil War times or um, ancient Rome? Oh, Christ. Mike is one of my favorite supporting characters from both shows. One of my favorite things about the fact that Better Call Saul was a prequel was that you could bring Mike back because he was another person who was introduced kind of out of necessity in Breaking Bad, and they didn't quite know what they had with him until the later seasons. And here, you could really write to his strengths. And Jonathan Banks is such a perfect fit for that character. So I was glad they were also able to integrate him. But let's talk about Bob Odenkirk, because I haven't talked about him that much, largely because it's kind of almost a foregone conclusion 
he is what makes this show work. And think about the journey that he's taken. I mean, he's brought in for Breaking Bad, originally intended to be for a few episodes as comedic relief. He has very little experience, almost no experience as a dramatic actor. And here, several years later, he is carrying his own show, basically learning on the job and just crushing it. And it's something that I think people don't give comedians enough credit. Comedy is also acting and it's difficult. It's tough. It's about timing. You're playing so many often different characters. I mean, look at what Bob Odenkirk did. He was in sketch comedy for so many years. You're not just playing one different character an episode. You're playing seven different characters per episode. And the fact that Vince Gilligan and Peter Gould saw that potential in Bob Odenkirk and said, we're not just going to spin Saul off into a comedic series. This is going to be a dramatic series and we trust you. We know that you can do it. And Bob Odenkirk did it. Season by season, you can watch him getting better. To play a character this complex for the most accomplished dramatic actor would be a challenge. And the fact that Bob Odenkirk was able to not just do the part, but crush the part and show his new dimensions to this character season by season is incredibly impressive. And I hope that as we get into these last two Emmy cycles for Better Call Saul, that they don't sort of count against him that he started out as a comedic actor as often happens because this was such a great performance. And I think that it all comes to a head in that scene in the finale where he's sitting across from Marie Schrader He's partially responsible for the death of Gomez and Hank, and everybody in the room now knows it. And he goes into this story about living in fear of Walter White. I was kneeling in front of an open grave with a gun pointed at my head. And the way that he was able to, on a dime, switch into Saul Goodman when he just says, oh, I don't need to convince a jury. I just need to convince one juror. I have nothing. And you think jurors are going to buy that? One. All I need is one. You see that cold calculation that's always been there, and you understand that he hasn't really learned anything from any of this. In, in a way, he feels like he's more invincible because he feels like he has this leverage. The only thing that can draw him away is Kim. Kim Wexler walked into the Albuquerque DA's office last month. She spilled her guts about Howard Hamlin. And I think that is one of the best things and why these characters are so well written because the only person that could draw Kim Wexler down this road of crime and being a con man and grifting people is Jimmy McGill. And yet at the same time, the only person that could draw Saul Goodman back into a world of decency, into the world of being Jimmy McGill is Kim Wexler. They are destined for each other, and yet they are polar opposites, and it's all kind of put together when she leaves him and just says, we're terrible for each other, and we'll never leave. If I don't leave, we're just going to stay here and be toxic for each other forever. You asked if you were bad for me. That's not it. We are bad for each other. Generally, I think that Vince Gilligan and Peter Gould uh, delivered far more than the assignment required. As I was saying before, they could have just delivered this three-season quirky comedy that would have been well-regarded, and people would have said, like, oh, did you ever see Better Call Saul? Yeah, no, it was really funny. You know that funny character from Breaking Bad? Yeah, they did a couple seasons of his show. Yeah, 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 I liked it. Instead, they made a drama that, in many people's eyes, challenged Breaking Bad as far as quality. And I think that there's definitely a discussion to be had there. Not that it's a competition. That's just how good this show was. 
as far as like all time stuff, I think it is way too early to have any of these discussions about where the show ranks. I think a lot of that is determined over time and as people sit with it and analyze it and understand these characters. But it was an incredibly compelling drama, which is not what I was expecting from it at all. And in many ways, at a bare minimum, it is the best bonus feature of all time. It built on the characters from Breaking Bad. It introduced new characters that you came to love as an audience member. Yes, for me, the pure prequel stuff wasn't as compelling as the stuff with Howard and Chuck and Jimmy and Kim, but it's mainly because I already knew where those characters were heading, whereas I didn't quite know where all of these other ones would fall into Saul's past. It was a show that kept me guessing, it was a show that kept me entertained, and I thought that it was a show that had something to say, and actually gave me a new dimension on this character, and what more could you ask? And maybe the most impressive thing is that the show was so surprising, it kept me so wrapped up, that even six seasons in, every time they ran the Saul intro, I was worried that my cable cut out. So those are my thoughts, long-winded thoughts, on the entire series of Better Call Saul. What did you think? Did it live up to your expectations as a Breaking Bad prequel? Did it transcend what you thought it was going to be? Let me know down in the comments below. And as always, thank you so much for watching. I'll be back soon with more box office news and reviews. Until then, stay safe, and I'll see you next time. Bye.